This is the Trails Church Podcast. At the Trails Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples through the gospel in community and on mission. If you'd like more information about our church, visit our website, thetrails.org. Now, here's today's podcast. So I'd like to invite you to stand in honor of God's holy and errant and infallible word. We're going to read one verse. Our title this morning is The Royal Wedding Song. And as we're standing in honor of God's word, I'd like for us to just read one verse. I have 17 to cover, and we're going to do that in about two hours. So sit tight. Verse 1. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verse to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. God, thank you for the joy, the privilege, the honor it is ours to stand in honor of your word. God, our hearts have been filled with praise and adoration as we have sought to magnify and glorify you in this place of worship today. Our attention, our hearts, our desire is that you and you alone be glorified and exalted to the rightful place that is already yours, not because we do that, but you're already there. We simply acknowledge what is already a reality. And what an honor it is to be able to come as a church family and to worship together on this day. God, I pray that as we open your word, you would open our hearts, open our minds, help us be receptive, help us to apply individually and corporately that which you have given for us today from your word, for it will not return void, and we know that your word will last forever. So, Lord, use this time for your glory and for your honor, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. I want you to notice on the screen, I have a throwback picture for you a little bit, and we have a song, and I want you, as you listen to this song and look at this photograph, to think about this song. You ready, guys? Throw it up there. Who is that guy in the white up there? Do anybody know who he is? He looks a little like me. This is the before and this is the after. <laughs> Forty-five and a half years of marriage. On December 10th, we walked down the aisle of Lake Highlands Baptist Church and we got married. And the same pastor my mother grew up with was the same pastor my wife grew up with. And uh, we were married in Lake Highlands Baptist Church. And that's a picture of our wedding day. And the man in the middle is my father-in-law who's been with the Lord now for about 13 years, and uh, so he uh, gave her away. We're going to talk a little bit about marriage today. How many remember hearing that song when you walked down the aisle? Anybody? Did you play that song? Anybody know the name of that song? If you know the name of that song, raise your hand. If you hope to get married someday and you want that song played, raise your hand. All right. That should be really everybody, except for some of the very young. We're not quite ready for that, are we, moms and dads? But uh, that that tune is familiar because we use it many times in many different weddings, and you have more than likely heard that a number of times. And any time you hear it, it strikes a chord in your heart, brings memories to your mind, and makes you think about maybe a wedding day, if not your wedding day. And this song, this hymn that was written in Psalms 45 is such a song. It's such a hymn. It's striking the chord of those who are 
going to read this in the present reality when it was written about the wedding, a royal wedding of a king who was to be wed with his bride, his princess that was about to become his queen. And so it was written for the Davidic line and more than likely it was used in a number of royal weddings and so it was a familiar tune, a familiar song that many during the Israelite day, during David's Davidic reign and his lineage, they understood what this psalm meant. It was to be used for a royal wedding song. So it has present meaning as it was been written, but it also has prophetic meaning for us today because among many of the prophetic writings in the book of Psalms, this is one of those writings. This is one of those hymns. And it is a hymn that describes the marriage of the Lamb and His church. The Lamb is Christ, and you and I are the church. And one of these days, we are going to be wed with our groomsman, our king, the Lord Jesus Christ. We, as His bride, will be united once and forever with Him in a place that He's preparing for us, like a king would for his queen, a palace, a place designed just for those of us who are a part now of his church and of his bride. And so I want to look at this in two ways. I want us to look at what it meant in the present, but also what it means for us in the present now, in the prophetic, as it addresses now for you and I this special meaning of that glorious day when we will be united with our King, Jesus Christ, the Lord of our lives, as we are forever united with him. So I want to divide this psalm into four characteristics or four aspects, four points, four principles that I want us to look at. And we're going to try as quickly as we can in the next 50 minutes. Yes, I said 50. No, I'm just kidding. Next 35 minutes to look at all 17 of these verses. I'm kind of a verse-by-verse kind of a guy. So let's look at the royal wedding song. First of all, emanates from the heart. It starts, it originates, it is developed, it is written from the heart of the psalmist. It is something that is welling up within him, it is something that he is dwelling upon, he's thinking about, he's excited about, he's anticipating, he's looking forward to the wedding day of his king with his queen. And as a result of these thoughts and emotions and all of these desires and anticipations, as much most grooms and most brides do in anticipating of their wedding day. This is what this writer writes as he introduces, really, verse 1. He says, My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. Notice in the text that he starts this, this heart that he is feeling, this passion, this desire, this anticipation as a result of the overflow of his heart. It's almost like as if you had a cup and you continually poured some sort of beverage or substance in it where it would just begin to fill up and then begin to overflow as you continue to pour into it. It is overflowing. It is not only filled to the max, but it is continuing to overflow. These emotions, these passions, these desires, this anticipation is welling up and it is overflowing. What is overflowing? It's the thoughts that come from the theme that he is dwelling upon. And the pleasing theme, notice it is a pleasing theme, are the principles and the precepts, if not the promises that relate to the king, in which God promised not only to bless him, but to bless his offspring. And as he is 
dwelling upon as he is meditating on the word of God and the promises that God has given toward his king on his wedding day, he is overflowing with pleasure and with delight and anticipation as he meditates on God's word and the promises about his king. But notice also, as he is pinning this, he has one subject in mind. Notice that he seeks only an audience of one. This psalm, this song, this hymn is written to and for only one person, and that's the king, no one else, only the king. And so as a result of his attention, not only being welling up and overflowing as he dives into the scriptures and the promises of God, as he dwells upon the king, notice the script comes from the inspiration of the Spirit of God. In other words, it is ready to scribe. He is ready to write it down. This overflow of the Spirit of God as he's dwelling upon the Word of God, as he is meditating and thinking about King and only the King and no one else, it is easily and he is readily able to write it down through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. And that is the reason why it's included here in the psalm, in the Bible that you and I hold in our hand today. These are not just his words but they are words that come from the Spirit of God through the penmanship of the prophet of God for not only then, but for us even today. So we see that this emanates, it wells up from the heart. It is something that overflows. 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8 reminds us that Paul says, through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that our heart should long for, should love the appearing of the King. And that's what's happening here in this text. This writer, this psalmist, this songwriter, overflowing with all of this delight and desire and anticipation of dwelling upon the Word of God through inspiration of the Spirit of God, giving attention only to the King that God has appointed, is writing then from the heart. It is a matter of the heart. And our worship of the king, as we think about Christ our king, is in fact a matter of the heart. And it is him and him alone that is the driving force of not only the lives that we live, but the attentiveness that we give day by day and in one day when we see him. Um, as you saw that picture a while ago, I can remember, and some of you who are married, I know it may have been a long time for some of you, but just, you know, Go back in your memory bank and think about your wedding day. I don't know what yours was like, but I married, got married at Lake Highlands Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas. And I remember being in the pastor's study. And I remember the anticipation and the anxiety and the excitement and all of that. I'm going to marry the woman of my dreams. And, and so he was going to come out by himself. And then me and my other groomsmen were going to come in a few minutes later. And I was so nervous and so excited that I followed the pastor straight out and the guys didn't follow me. And then there was me and the pastor standing there. And there was about 600 people in this church that had gathered there that I had never seen in my life before, but they were there to see my wife and her family because they had been in the church a long time. And I think there were a few people who couldn't believe I was getting married. So they showed up. And I remember standing there kind of nervous and embarrassed because I had come out on the wrong time. And then later the groomsmen came and then, you know, the scenario, right? I mean, here comes maybe a, a little cute little girl throwing flowers down, you know, and everybody's oohing and ah, how cute she looks. And then here comes a ring bearer, right? Not really holding the real rings because you don't want her to drop them or lose them on the way. So, you know, somebody else already has them on stage. And uh, then comes the, 
the bridesmaids one at a time to some special music. And then all of a sudden the doors are closed. And you remember guys standing there waiting. You've not seen her yet because back in those days, bad luck to see your bride on the wedding day, right? You haven't seen her now probably all day. And you're anticipating that moment. And then all of a sudden that song plays and doors come open. And there she is. Right? Your heart filled with excitement. Your jaw drops because she's as beautiful as you have ever seen before. Amen, guys? Turn to your bride and say, that's true of me. I was there. Go ahead and tell them. It's a marriage enrichment weekend, okay? <clears throat> and, uh, and when she walks down the aisle, that song is played, and what happens? Everybody stands, right? She is the focal attention of everything in that room. Until she walks down the aisle, father hands her over to you, you get up on the platform, and everybody sits. The bride at a wedding today is the focal attention of a wedding ceremony. In this scenario, it is not the bride. It is only the king, only the groom. So those of you who are thinking about planning your marriage, let me encourage you to think about putting the groom behind the closed door and the bride come up and see how that works for you. That's unnatural, isn't it? Because we want to be center stage. We want to be in the spotlight. We want all the focus to be upon us or maybe the bride as it should be. But in this text, he is so focused on the king and all of his splendor and glory and majesty. And we're going to look at how he describes this incredible king next. He is the focal point. It is all about him and our attention is drawn to him. And so it should be in the lives that we live today. That he and he alone should get the glory and the honor and the praise and the attentiveness, not only in this life, but the anticipation of one day he's going to return. Because the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 4 that we should long for and love the day of his appearing. And so because our desire is for the king and our attention is on him and him alone, then we so desire that day that we are living moment by moment in anticipation and expectation and excitement about that day. Do you live with that kind of expectation, that kind of anxiety, that kind of longing where you love and you long for the day when this life is over? And you are walking down that aisle to be received by your King of Kings and Lord of Lords. How long has it been since you've thought about your wedding day where you will stand with your Savior and be united with Him once and forever? Because one day it will happen. And yet we, as the writer, need to well up and overflow with emotions as we dwell upon and anticipate that glorious day. Secondly, notice the psalmist exalts the king's glory. Notice in the text, verse 2, as he elevates, he exalts, as he focuses on the king now, notice he describes here this magnificent son. Notice verse 2, you are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips, therefore God has blessed you forever. He has found favor with God, and that favor has brought about this really attractive handsome king. He is good-looking. So tell your wife, I was as good-looking as this king on my wedding day. Go ahead. I dare you. Anybody in here thought on your wedding day you're the most good-looking guy on the platform? 
This guy is the most good-looking guy on the platform. He is the one. He looks good. He looks fine. He is handsome, and he's good-looking more than any other man that could have ever been married, this king. And notice it says grace is put upon his lips, meaning that his lips have power. They have grace. They bring about when he speaks healing. They bring comfort. They bring the will and the word of God. And so he is speaking with authority and he's speaking the will and the word of God and is bringing healing to those who are there. He is a magnificent son. He is the most magnificent of all sons of men. And certainly Christ was that. He loved to call himself the son of man, didn't he, when he was present in this life, ascribing to him, I think, this possible prophetic messianic hymn, but in other places where he said, I am the son of man, and he, and he alone, is and always will be the most handsome of all men that we could ever gaze upon. And his words not only bring about the will and the word of God, but they bring comfort and healing to those of us who hear them. So he's a magnificent son. Notice he is the mighty warrior. Notice in verse 3, the scene all, all of a sudden changes in this visible imagery of this beautiful, handsome, powerful king. Now is described as a warrior, as a conquering king, as a victorious in battle. Notice, gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. Verse 4, in your majesty ride out victoriously. For the cause of truth and meekness and rightness, let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Describing a king who is riding out possibly in his chariot to retrieve, to get, or to bring his bride into the marriage ceremony. And that's what they did back in the day. He left his house, the groom left his house to go retrieve his wife who was in her father's house, and then he brought her to the place in which the matrimony, the marriage would take place, and that is descriptive of the king. And as he's doing that, notice that he is, has a sword here to his right. He's, he's identifying, and the imagery there is that of a warrior, a soldier, a victor, a conqueror, a king who has been victorious in battle. Notice here in the text that his splendor and his majesty is described. He is handsome. He is Kind of like a, a hero who is being elevated to this position of, of, of status, of victorious king. Notice, why is he victorious? Because he has fought for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. And he has let his right hand teach you awesome deeds. That concept and that idea of, of right hand means that a place of honor. Anytime in the Bible you see the right hand being described, it is to position whatever is being described as a place of honor. And he is honoring then the truth of the Lord. His will and his word is that which he honors and he is holding high the truth in that he is living it out in his own personal life. But he's exercising then as the ruler, as the king, anointed and appointed by God to enforce, to govern with the truth. Notice the word in meekness and righteousness in the original language. That is one word, not two. He is humble in his leadership, but he is leading with righteousness, with truth. And uh, the reason why he reigns with justice is because he's using the truth to implement the justice. Because you can't have justice without truth, and truth always leads to justice in government. So he's 
fighting for the truth and he's standing true to the truth in his own life and in the governance of the truth over the people. And so much so, notice it describes the arrows here are sharp and in the heart of the king's enemies. That has the idea that the truth has a way of penetrating any armor, any defense that the enemy may put up against the truth so that conviction, when the word and the truth is being proclaimed and enforced, it brings about that conviction. And because of his, 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 his dedication to the truth, his implementation of that truth in his life and in his governance, no one stands to his equal. And all who gaze upon this king are in awe. Isn't that true about our king, the mighty warrior, who not only lived a perfect and sinless life, not only spoke God's truth, but lived it out in his own life perfectly to only die on a cross we call Calvary. So that through his atoning sacrificial death on the cross, he can then hold up the truth and then use that truth to to rightly and justly declare that truth and enforce that truth for those of us who place our faith and trust in him. And by his atoning and sacrificial death on the cross, he defeated not only death, but he defeated sin. He is our conquering king. He is our mighty warrior. He is the one and only one who could hold up truth, to live it out perfectly, and enforce it in our lives and bring it to reality. And notice then we see the description of a majestic ruler. He moves from a, a mighty warrior to now a majestic ruler. Notice verse 6, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is the scepter of your righteousness. That scepter is symbolic of one's sovereignty and one's authority in that he rules with sovereignty, he rules with incredible authority, and he uses then the truth to bring righteousness. In other words, when he rules, it is right, his rulings are right, and his rulings always bring about righteousness and always accomplish then the purpose and the plans to fulfill God's word. Notice in the text, it is God's kingdom, not man's. In other words, the king is appointed, he's anointed, he's placed, and he's used by God not only for his kingdom, but for the kingdom of God. I said this in the early service and not in my notes, and sometimes I chase rabbits or two, but I'm going to do this really quickly. Leadership is not a right, it's a privilege. Let me say that again. Leadership is a right, it's not a privilege. Is that right? No, leadership is a privilege, not a right. Because, you see, we serve at the privilege of the king of kings. And sometimes when we get those mixed up and we think that leadership is a right that we can possess, we possess it because it's our kingdom and not his kingdom. But when it's God's kingdom and it belongs to him, he entrusts us with that leadership. And leadership that becomes something that is a blessing. It's not a right. And so we need to understand that because God at any time can change the leaders that he places intact because they serve at his pleasure and it's not a right. So guard whatever leadership God's given you and guard it well because it's him and him alone that puts you in charge of leading that which he is building in and through your life. Notice in verse 7, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Notice the king has lived by what is right and he is enforce that which is right. He has challenged anything that would be unrighteous and unholy. He dislikes that which is unholy. He 
in his own life and also in his kingdom. Therefore, notice, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your champions. God favors now this king who has lived out the truth and has governed by the truth, has enforced the truth, has guarded the truth, has promoted and proclaimed truth. God favors him with the oil of gladness far greater than anyone else on the planet. You want to be glad? You want to have joy greater than anyone else? Live the life that God has called you to live and follow him and him alone. And notice the oil that you were anointed with was the oil of gladness. Notice verse 8, your robes are all fragrant with mirth and alloys and cassia. Notice he is clothed handsomely. He's wearing fine linen. He's dressed to the hilt. He looks like he walked out of a Calvin Klein store or something like that, wherever you may shop. Uh, We were at Patty's reunion last night, and there was one guy among the several hundred of us that looked like he was, I don't know, he looked like royalty. He had this $2,000 suit on and this fancy shirt and these little, you know, tie thing. I mean, he's, you know, I'm saying, you look at four or $500 shoes, and you go, wow. I mean, he was the only one dressed like that. You know, and he kind of stood out. And that's kind of the idea here is that this, this king is standing out not only because of his beauty, but also because of what he is wearing. He, is, he has been robed with these incredible, very expensive, very fine clothes. And then notice, from ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. He is given by this king, uh, given by God, uh, this, this in- incredible palace or palaces in which he lives. And in these palaces, there are people who are playing these instruments. Some like instruments that David plays, a guitar, or maybe a keyboard like Olivia plays. And these instrumentalists are playing these instruments continually, and these instruments bring gladness and joy in his heart. I mean, there are people that are bringing merriment into his life all of the time. How many know of a life like that? Okay? You didn't raise your hand. That means you've got toddlers in your home. Anyway, (laughs) notice verse 9, daughters of kings are among your ladies' honor. Notice it's almost as if the ladies, the, the bridesmaids, have already assembled into the place and that everything is set for the wedding. Notice verse 9, all your right, at your right hand stands the queen and she's dressed in gold. Notice the right hand again is the place of honor. While all attention is drawn to the king, the queen is now positioned in a position of honor. She's at the right hand of her king of her groomsmen, you and I as the bride of Christ will be a part, will be present, will be there with Christ on our wedding day. While we may not be the center of attention and every eye is on us, we will have a place at the right side of our Savior, our Lamb, our groomsman, Jesus Christ, standing in the place that he has assigned, that he has prepared for us, and there we are with our groomsmen, with our king, ready for our wedding day. It's interesting then in verse 10, we see how the psalmist always almost changes sort of the trajectory where he's addressing the king, and now he begins to look at the bride. He esteems or he values the king's bride. And it's, I think, suiting for uh, him to talk about the bride because she is present and she's in a place of honor as we are, and so this is for her as well as for us, the bride of Christ. And notice how she prepares for her wedding day. Notice verse 10. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. 
She has heard the invitation, the proposal of her king. She has accepted it. Ladies, remember how you were proposed to. I'm not going to tell you the details of my proposal to my wife, Patty. We've been married four and a, five and a half years. I would hate to say that my proposal was not the reason why she stayed married to me for 45 and a half years. I was not as romantic as I should have been. So if you're planning on being married, uh, come see me. And I hope you understand that you need to avoid some of the way, the way that I proposed to my wife. I would say, do not repeat what I did. Now, some of you guys are romantics and you went overboard, right? Come on, right? Did you not? Yes? No? Okay, you're a lot like me then, right? Okay, guys, we're going to have to step it up. Anyway, so she considered the proposal, and she accepted the king's proposal. Yes, I heard you call. I heard you invite. I have responded in your invitation. She's ready. She's prepared. Notice, forget your people and your father's house. She's not only accepted, but now she's to abandon any relationships, any connections that she had prior to this wedding day. She is now leaving her dad and her family, and she's uniting with her king, and his family is going to be her family. She's abandoning all others for him. Verse 11, and the king will desire your beauty. She is making herself attractive for her king to desire her and to long for her. Notice, since he is your Lord, bow to him. She acknowledges him as her sovereign, as her Lord, as the one who is submissive to his rulership and his leadership. Verse 12, the people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the riches of the people. Notice, she's acquiring wealth on her wedding day. People are giving her gifts on the wedding day. Guys, I don't know about you, but I didn't get any gifts on my wedding day. Did you? The bride did all the gift thing, right? And she got all the gifts. They all went to her house. I saw them after, after the fact. And when we got married, what did she do? She brought all those gifts into our house, and I got to enjoy them. That's what she's doing here. And then notice in verse 13, All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. She is adoring herself. She is putting on these beautiful garments so that she can adore herself for her king. This queen, before this princess, before she marries, is preparing for her wedding day. Ladies, did you prepare for your wedding day? Some of you prepared for your wedding day way before it came. Uh, any guy in here dream about getting married when he was like 12 or 13? Come on. Are you brave enough to admit that? Any guy in here? I know I didn't. Uh, matter of fact, the, only, the first wedding I ever went to was my own. Anybody got a guy had a witness to that? Yeah, I didn't. I didn't prepare for my wedding, and uh, I was rather nervous on my wedding day, and I wasn't really that instrumental in all the preparations. I think my wife and her mother did most of the work. Come on, guys, right? Yeah, we just kind of showed up. Can I get an amen to that? Come on, guys. Yeah, this is a marriage enrichment weekend. We're going to have the marriage enrichment stuff this afternoon, not right now. And uh, she prepared. You know, there is a day in which we will have a wedding day where we will unite with our Christ, the Lamb, who is coming for his bride, the church, that's you and I. And there's an aspect about that day that we must make sure that we're prepared for it when it comes. How do we prepare for it? By grace through faith, we place our trust in Jesus Christ. Our confidence is in, in his death on the cross. 
where he dies for our sin against God, and in our place, he then helps us overcome then the sin that is in our lives and defeats the enemy. And as a result of that, we are born again, we are adopted into the family, and by grace through faith, that work is now complete, and the work that he did has now been done, which makes us prepared for our wedding day. So if you're here today, you've never placed your faith and trust in Christ, you're not prepared for the wedding day. For only through, by grace through faith in Christ can you prepare for this wedding day. And if you've made that decision, if you've received Christ as your Savior, place your faith and trust in Him by grace through faith, you're ready. Because it's not about what you do, but it's all about what He has done. The work is finished. We are now prepared. Does that mean that we don't live a righteous life? No, we live righteously as a result of our preparedness, not to be prepared. Right? So we're prepared. Are you prepared? She was prepared. And now, because of that preparation, she presented to the king. Notice the presentation of the king in verse 14. How is she presented to the king? Verse 14, in many colored robes, she is led to the king. Finally, finally it's here. She's been waiting for this day. She's been anticipating, preparing for it, excited about it. It's been days, weeks, maybe months for her wedding day. Ladies, you remember that day, that excitement, that anticipation, and you were there, and it's finally here, your wedding day. Notice not only is it finally here, but she's followed, she's followed by her companions. Notice they follow her, her virgin companions following behind her. Their bridesmaids are there. They are perfect. They are glorious. They are virgins. They are Honorable, notice verse 15, with joy and gladness they are led along. She is filled with joy and with gladness on her wedding day. I hope your wedding day wouldn't fill with sadness and disappointment. But she here is joyous and glad. And what a day that will be for those of us, the bride of Christ, when Christ returns and retrieves us unto himself and brings us into his presence on our wedding day, we'll be filled with joy with gladness, just like on our wedding day here. But notice the last little verse, the last little phrase here, as they enter the palace of the king. The ceremony is over. They are wed. And now she's forever united with her king. By grace through faith, we are saved. And once we are saved, we're always secure. Our salvation is always set. Um, I like to say that once saved, always safe always secure. You can't lose what you didn't earn. You can't keep anything that's been a gift. For by grace through faith, he gives us then what we need, what's necessary for that preparation. And when we stand before him, we stand there because of what he did on the cross for us. And by grace through faith and our understanding and our belief and our confidence in him, we will be wed and we will be presented to our king presented to the king. Ephesians 5, 25 and 27. You have your Bible, and I want to just read that very quickly. It's not going to be on your monitor up there. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. Notice what it says. Husbands, love your eyes as Christ loved the church and gave him up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water and the word, so that he might present the church. Look at that so that he might present the church to himself. 
He is preparing us to present us to himself. Isn't that amazing? Church to himself. Notice how we're going to be presented to him. Notice the work that he's going to do in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might, we might be holy and without blemish. When we stand before him, because of his sanctifying work on the cross and because of the righteousness that we stand on in him, we are holy and we are without blemish. We have been prepared and now we are being presented to our king, to our groomsman, to our savior and to our Lord. What a beautiful picture that is, isn't it? Then lastly, this psalmist here embodies the king's future. Of course, like in any marriage, there's always an anticipation of what it's going to look like after the I do's, right? And uh, not all marriages are exactly like Hallmarks, right? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Guys, do you suffer through Hallmarks? Yeah, they have most of the same plots, mostly all the time, different people and a couple of, never mind, I'm not going to go there. But I've learned to not only accept them, but enjoy them. Right, guys? Come on. Right? Okay. I'm not getting any amens out of that, but that's okay. Verse 16. Notice the future. It says, in place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. His princesses will be multiplied. In other words, there'll be offspring. There'll be children. There'll be descendants that will result because of this beautiful matrimony, because of this marriage. And we are recipients, are we not, of the gospel of Christ. And thanks be to God that you and I are part of the family because we are the offspring of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Verse 17, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Notice the future, he will be remembered for who he is. The position that he holds as king is to be remembered, not just then, but forever. He will be renowned, he will be remembered, and because of that, notice, therefore nations will praise you forever and ever. How long will this praise last? Forever and ever. We not only praise him here in this service today and the lives that we live day by day, but one of these days when we are united with our Savior, with our Lord, with our Lamb, with our groomsmen, we're going to praise him, and we're going to praise him, and we're going to praise him. My father-in-law that you saw in that picture earlier, I believe is in that heavenly chorus right now, praising God the Father and God the Son right now. My father that died a few months ago is standing beside him, joining him in that heavenly chorus, praising God. And if you don't enjoy praising him here today, you're not going to have much fun in heaven because that's all we're going to do when we get there is continually, forever, glorify, magnify, worship, and praise his holy name. One last verse. I think I got time, right? I got the thumbs up. Good. Revelation 19.6. I got a clock watcher back there. <clears throat> Turn your Bible in Revelation chapter 19, verse 6. I want to read this as we close. Beautiful description of the lamb that's coming for his bride. This is for you and for me, I believe. Revelation 19, 6. Then I heard what seemed to be like the voice of a great multitude, 
like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of the mighty pearls of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen. Notice, it was granted her. He did it for her, right? He granted it to her. Clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, holy, blameless, spotless. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Are you prepared for that glorious day when the trumpet of God will blow and the dead in Christ will rise and those of us who remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds and will be forever with the Lord? Are you prepared to meet your maker for this glorious day on this your wedding day? He's done all the work that's necessary. By grace through faith, we are presented to him, accepted by him, and acceptable to him. And he will place us at his right side in a place of honor. Yet the spotlight's still on him. And what a glorious day that will be. As I close, I want to tell you a little bit about me this morning. I always set my clock to wake up at 5 o'clock on Sunday morning. <laughs> uh, I usually get up every morning at 5 o'clock. But lately, I've been turning the alarm off and sleeping a little bit longer because I, I can. You know what I mean? I'm supposed to be semi-retired. I'm part-time, you know, employee of a convention, so I can set, you know, turn my alarm off. And to be quite honest with you, I've been going to bed a little bit late at night, so I've not been going up. So anyway, this morning, I knew as I was closing my eyes last night, I was thinking about this message. And I don't know if you know, but I don't use a whole lot of notes, and so... I've got to get it in my head and my heart so I can then just kind of say whatever God tells me to say. Most of the time it's good, sometimes it's not. But anyway, um, and so I went to bed with those thoughts. You know, I, I need to get up early at 5 o'clock and I need to go through this. Because my dad taught me before he died, study yourself full, pray yourself hot, and let yourself go. You ready for that, Jim? All right, study yourself full, pray yourself hot, and let yourself go. You need to write that down because he's preaching next Sunday. And... Um, I'm lowering the bar, brother, so I'm telling you, man, you're gonna, it's going to be easy when you get up here next Sunday. Matt's going to be leading, so anyway. Um, and so I went to bed with all these thoughts, and I was anticipating, excited about being here. And Matt asked me uh, yesterday as he was, you know, he said, are you excited? I said, yeah, I'm excited. I'm ready to go. And so I had all these thoughts in my head when I went to bed. And, and I kid you not, at 4 o'clock straight up this morning, I went, oh, I, I mean, I just woke up. Like I had somehow, I thought maybe to myself, I have punched the alarm and it's 8 o'clock and I need to get to the church. I mean, that's my first thought. I missed the alarm. One of these days, the trumpet of God's going to blow. And no one in this room wants you to miss that day. And if you today do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord, we encourage you to look to one of the elders or myself or anyone in this room. And we can talk to you about a decision where you can prepare yourself to be presented to your king. Because he came to be your king. And the only way he can be your king is through the preparation that's required to make him your king. The alarm will sound. Will you be prepared? Will you be ready? 
Lord, thank you for the day and the opportunity that we've had to be challenged by this passage, and I pray that your spirit that is present in this place would take your word, would apply it to our individual hearts. May it pierce any armor, any protective gear, any excuse, any delay that we have put forth, and may you bring about the conviction that's needed to make sure to ensure that we are prepared for that day. Lord, if we're not, help us to see why and help us to seek the answer. For only you can call us. And only when you call us can we respond. So call forth those that you're wanting to redeem unto yourself and to make us a part of that glorious day. Those of us who are, God, I pray that we would live righteously, not because we're trying to earn or work for our salvation, but simply because of what you've already done. And may we uphold your righteousness from a righteous standing that we already possess in Christ. Help us to live and to fight for the truth of your word and your will in our lives and through our lives. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from The Trails Church. We hope you have been encouraged, equipped, and edified by time spent together in God's Word. And again, if you'd like to find out more about The Trails Church, visit our website, thetrails.org. 